Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on was out at the conference in California at WHW, and yes, I'm finally going to remember to say something about it. I get up here and I'm so focused on what I'm going to teach, I just forget to say anything about it unless it's written down, and even then I don't look at my notes, so why should I write it down? Uh, last week, as most of you know, I went out to the conference in Los Angeles, and it was better attended than last year. Last year, because of the... Um, Probably the recession, the economy, uh, tenants had fallen off. There were probably some other reasons as well, but that was a primary reason. For those of you who don't know, this conference started 20 years ago. This was the 20th year for this conference. There were uh, three men, by, and their last names were Williams, Harris, and Waddles. And so that's where they get the WHWs from the initials of their last name. So it doesn't stand for anything spiritual or scriptural or anything like that. It's just very, very common um, basis for the uh, naming of the conference. And they had attended a conference that was here in Houston, Texas, at Second Baptist Church. It was a conference on expository preaching. And all of the big names were here, Chuck Swindoll and Ed Young and I don't know who, Haddon Robinson and Earl Rodmacher, in which it was originally written. So that is context and culture. Second thing is word studies, understanding the meaning of the words in the original languages. And then third was uh, the understanding of the grammar, the syntax, the basic structure of the words and sentences uh, in the in the Greek and Hebrew. Well, R.A. Williams came out of that class, and R.A. was talking to these other two men and said, you know, we need to do this for black preachers because they don't know how to, how to do this. And uh, many of them have not had formal training. And so the next year, they had a gathering here in Houston. It was their first conference, and they planned for about 500, and they had about... 49 show up or something like that. And uh, from what I hear, those early years, they always planned for big numbers because many people said they would come and then hardly anybody would show up. But it gradually grew, gradually increased to around five or 600. And then in the summer of 98, um, uh, Harris died. Larry Harris died. And he was a pastor of a church up in Oklahoma. Waddles is a pastor of a church in Chicago and is a major officer in one of the large uh, black Baptist denominations. So he has a large group that he's influences out of Chicago, and then Harris influenced a large group out of the Ohio, Indiana area. And then, of course, R.A. was from Houston, so he influenced a lot of people from here, which gave him also gave him connections throughout the, uh, the, the South, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, and uh, Alabama. And so those have been the three broad geographical areas from which most of the uh, pastors have come. That's one reason attendance has fallen off the last five years. If you think back to the summer of '04, there were a couple of hurricanes. I think one was Ivan or Hugo or something. I forget, but there were a couple of hurricanes that hit, um, you know, Gulfport, Mississippi, Alabama, hit them hard. Then we had uh, Katrina, I think, was in '05, and then and Rita. And then we had um, Ike last year. And so this really uh, hit areas hard. In fact, there are pastors from New Orleans and Gulfport, Mississippi, and those areas that uh, came for every year up until they got hit with the hurricane, and I haven't seen them in three, four, or five years. Some of those men lost their churches, lock, stock, and barrel. Everybody left. The buildings got wiped out. So that's, that's one reason, uh, one of the... Uh, phys- physical reasons that the uh, conference fell off. But anyway, so they started this, and in summer of 98, uh, Harris went to be with the Lord, suddenly had a heart attack. He was a young man in his early 50s at the time and uh, went to be with the Lord um, end of July. And some of the men that had been with the conference from the very beginning here in Houston had been students of mine back in at the college, what is now the College of Biblical Studies in the early 80s, like 83, 84, uh, 
85, somewhere in there. And so he had taught Greek grammar at a sort of like a grammar for people who don't know Greek. Using rudimentary tools back then, you'd have to put five different books out on your desk because no book had everything in it. So you'd have a Greek interlinear, and you'd go from the English, figure out the Greek word. Then you'd have to go over here to a Greek analytical, find that Greek word again, and then see the abbreviation underneath it that would give you a code as to what the part of speech was, parsing of the verb, the noun, whatever. And then you would have to go to some other other tools just to get some kind of a handle on on the grammar if you didn't know didn't know Greek but it was uh, difficult cumbersome and the first year I taught that's what we had but lo and behold computers and logos hit the scene and we had LCD projectors and computer programs that combined all those tools into one and so by 99 it was just a whole new ball game for teaching men rudimentary things related to uh, uh, related to grammar and so um, I've been doing that since uh, since 98 fall of 98 right after I went to Preston City moved up there and at the end of April got a call middle of September to one of the students had tracked me down hadn't seen him in about 12 years tracked me down and said hey can you you do this it's just like what you taught us years ago same method and um so that's how I get involved. So every year I do that. Now we've changed things up a little bit, and I just take the men who've been coming four or five years uh, so they, they get into a little more advanced understanding of, uh, of grammar, uh, and then um, and I do, do that in the morning. And then in the afternoon, and I'll have anywhere from, you know, 15 to 25 students, 35 students sometimes, and then in the afternoon, I teach sort of an elective class, and I've taught through soteriology, doctrines of salvation, and eschatology, and dispensations, and understanding uh, understanding free grace gospel. And this year, I did a class on how to develop men leaders in, in the church because I had gone over here to one of the um, uh, one of my friends' churches over here, one of the black churches in town. I walked in by. Uh, big revival one night, and I walked in late. I'd left here from Bible class, went over there, stood in the back of the church and looked across the crowd, and I saw about six pastors up on the platform. And outside of two men in the in the congregation, which was full, probably about 250 people there, those were the only men. And it really hit me, as I've talked with so many of these uh, pastors, that this is a major problem in in black churches. You Average in black churches are 85% women and 15% men. Now, that might make us feel like, well, we got it a little better than that, but if you look around sometime on Sunday morning, we're probably pretty average. Average for America is 60% women and 40% men. And studies have shown that even as far back as the Puritan era, Cotton Mather was complaining about the fact that he could go to any church within uh, an hour's walk of his house in Puritan, Massachusetts in the mid-1600s, and they would be churches of three or four hundred uh, in attendance, and only 25% were men. And that was in a society, in a culture, in a, in a population that was predominantly men, had 50 to 55, 60% men, as opposed to women. So there are a lot of different sociological reasons to explain it, but a lot of it is that in many churches, and what's interesting, you look at statistics going back to the 20th century, that the more emotional a denomination or our church is, the higher the, the split is between women to men, and which is interesting. If you go to a Greek Orthodox church, it's going to be more men than women. So these are interesting facets. So there are things that are done in churches that make them more conducive to attracting men and things that are done that men just don't want to have anything to do with. So coming out of our background, uh, that may seem a little uh, odd, but I think it's important, as I keep emphasizing and did this last week, if you do things to attract men, the women will come. But if you do things to attract women, the men will not come. And the more you do things that are acceptable to women, the more women you will have and the fewer men you will have. 
And so it's important to have an appeal to a, and understand what the Bible teaches about what um, uh, masculinity is and what femininity is and do things to appeal to a the biblical role of men as opposed to appealing to the sin nature of men. And um, so we covered a lot of things there. And they're not... They're not unaware of this as a problem, believe me. They are really wrestling with it, especially when it comes to dealing with uh, teenagers. And we had some tremendous discussions and a lot of, a lot of guys sharing some tremendous ideas of things that they're doing uh, in their churches and in their congregations to try to uh, build a sense of, of identity and community in the young men and why it is important to be a Christian man. So that is uh, very important. So the afternoon classes were, were very good. And then, and the morning classes were as well. And then, um, one of the things that we've done over the last, uh, uh, since about 2000, I think, um, I brought Wayne House in in 99, and then Wayne brought Mike Adams in with Faith Seminary in 2000, and we started putting together a, a curriculum with Faith that the men who come to WHW could enroll in classes through Faith Seminary and get some credit for what they did at WHW, but then they would take uh, take a number of other classes up in up in Tacoma. And this has took a while to get started, but it has really taken off. And every year, there's about 20, 25 men that get a master's degree, and about 10 or 15 that get a doctorate of ministry. And this is just just really. Uh, been great to see that response uh, among these uh, these men and these pastors and the impact that that's having on their congregations because they're able to uh, study the Word. They understand issues in theology a lot better, and they study the Word a lot better. And it's always important to emphasize an educated, trained clergy. And that was the, the, the bulwark of Theological education in this country was due to the influence of Calvinism and Presbyterianism, and the flag of orthodoxy was often was carried by schools like Princeton back in the 19th century and various other schools that were pretty solid. They weren't, of course, dispensational, but they were very solid. They, they stood their ground against the onslaught of liberalism for decades, and um, and the emphasis was on having an education. And many times in the frontier days, you would see a guy, uh, an itinerant preacher, would have his Greek New Testament, uh, Hebrew Bible, in his saddlebags because he could read them. He was they were educated. And now we just don't believe in education anymore. Back then, everybody you know went to school, went to grammar school, and the grammar they learned was Latin. And that became the foundation for everything else. So uh, it's important to bring people back to that standard and to support it. And that's one of the reasons we're trying to get, uh, you know, Chafer Seminary established and to maintain those kinds of standards. But we are truly swimming upstream against the current, against all the trends today, because, number one, you don't have a culture, a ecclesiological culture in Bible churches where men come out of Bible churches and want to go to seminary after they graduate from college. And I just always understood that, that after I got out of college, might maybe work a couple of years, but that was when you should go to seminary was at that time. And to go to seminary meant that you were going to go across the country. You were going to move somewhere, and you had to trust God to provide a job and money and all of those other things. And now what I hear so often is, well, I waited too long, which is a very damning admission. I waited too long. Uh, I married um, I don't know how God's going to provide for me if I move across the country. Well, if you can't learn to trust God to take care of you to move across the country and go to seminary, then you will never know how to trust God to provide for a congregation when you get out there in the pastor. That's part of your education. It's not just books. It's not just Greek grammar and Hebrew grammar and theology. It's learning to trust God. It's learning to sit in a classroom and listen to a professor that you really don't agree with and have to think through your beliefs in such a way that you can uh, defend them academically and in a scholarly manner uh, in a written paper. If you can't write, you can't really think 
critically and you can't think in detail. There's a great statement. I don't know if I can remember it. Um, uh, who was it that uh, initiated this statement? Uh, Franklin had something similar to it. It was uh, a conversation makes a man ready. Uh, reading, uh, reading makes a man full. Uh, conversation makes a man ready. And writing makes a man precise. And learning how to write and have, being forced into that discipline of writing exegetical papers, writing theological papers, writing uh, theological papers to defend your position so that you can learn how to logically uh, de- present, defend, support your views is, is crucial uh, and to being able to think and think clearly when you get in the pulpit. But we've lost that culture. People, uh, I hear this again and again, men don't want to go. They don't want to move. Let's, why can't we just do this on the Internet? Because we're not supporting lazy clergy. I mean, I just can't think, but that's part of it, that we're lazy in our faith, we're lazy in our trust, and we just don't have the, 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 just the get up and go and the drive and the passion to be excellent anymore in terms of uh, men going to, to seminary. And so the, the old standbys that are there that were the bulwarks of conservative uh, theology uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago have all shifted, and a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of pastors who are conservative uh, don't understand. George was telling me this last year that when he was traveling through the Midwest, he went to a number of uh, new churches, uh, pastors he hadn't talked to in years, and he communicated the trends that were going on at uh, Dallas Seminary, at Western uh, Conservative Baptist Seminary, at Denver Seminary, just sweeping all the seminaries. And they had no idea. They just thought that uh, everything was just fine and dandy at these schools like they had always been. And it's never that way. I mean, everything just sort of always, uh, you know, the garbage of the world always rolls downhill, and that's the trend in every, every, every institution. So when a culture, a church culture, can't produce men leaders, and a church culture isn't trying to create that vision, among the young people that they might have the gift of pastor teacher and to pursue that with excellence, then you've got serious, serious problems. So it was a good conference, except that I woke up on uh, Wednesday morning with laryngitis, but I muddled through anyway. All right, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 1. Great chapter for talking about what I've just been talking about, and that is the importance of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, what's important here is to understand that we're not talking about faith in relation to justification salvation, that is, faith in Christ in order to uh, be justified, to have eternal life, and to enter into the royal family of God, faith for regeneration. We're talking about post-salvation faith, faith that is uh, important for spiritual growth and spiritual advance. Good, now that I got that over with. If we look at the last part, well, I didn't, guess I didn't get it all over with. If you look at the last part of chapter 10, where we have the uh, the quotation from Habakkuk 2.3, uh, forget a little while, he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. The point that we're talking about is those who are justified shall live by faith. It is not talking about, therefore, phase one uh, justification. Hold on a minute. That's really what you all have heard stories about things like that. One time I told the story about what some guys did to Pastor Theme, and one time I started coughing and choking up, and I was up at Preston City, and Jim Sexton brought me a glass of water, and he had dumped half of a salt bottle into uh, into that glass of water, and I really spewed that out. Okay. So we're talking, this is important to understand here because I think that when you approach Hebrews 11 and think that he's talking about faith for justification, then you will end up with a lordship type of view of faith, that faith, real saving faith, is going to have evidence. And if you don't have the right kind of evidence, 
then how do you know you have saving faith? You know you have saving faith because you know you believe the gospel. You know and you can know what you believe for salvation. And if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you have eternal life, and you can know that. And your assurance is not based on looking at your life and quantifying the fruit that's there. None of us has the knowledge to be able to do that. Yet, in essence, that is the problem with lordship salvation, is this attempt to quantify fruit and to determine if it is of the right quality to show that you have real saving faith and that if you don't have the right kind of works, then, well, maybe your faith isn't saving and you're not really a Christian. We've all slipped into that trap where we see somebody who has just made a real mess of their life and they have just been wallowing in the pig trough with the prodigal son and we look at him and say, you know, I thought he was a Christian. See, there's a horrible... Uh, assumption there that a Christian really wouldn't do that. But let me tell you, there is nothing that a Christian can't and won't do. I've been in ministry long enough, and some of you have been around the church long enough to realize that there's a lot of people who aren't Christians that are a lot better at maintaining a consistent morality and ethic than, than Christians, unfortunately. But Christians can do just about anything. So that's why I took time last time to talk about what is faith. And I want to review this rapidly tonight. I don't want to spend as much time as I did last week, mostly because I'll probably cough myself to death. Okay, what is faith? Faith is understanding something and then accepting it to be true. We must have a grasp of the meaning of the statement that Jesus died for your sins. Something you, you may not understand all the implications and applications, but you understand basically that you're that we are under condemnation for Adam's sin and that we are lost and we need to be saved at a level even a child can understand. So number one, I said that faith is a response to what is taught in the Bible. There's always it's the object is biblical truth. Faith is a response to what is taught. In the Bible. So faith grasps a statement of truth. It's always focused on a statement of truth, a statement that can be either verified or falsified. That's why we call it propositional, because that, the term proposition has a very technical sense in, uh, in logic that it is a declarative statement that can either be proved to be, that can be proved to be either true or false. So we believe it to be true or we reject it as false. So faith is a response to a statement in the Bible. Second, it's an act of trust in something or someone or belief that something is true. So that when we say you're, if if a person says they are a rationalist, uh, like Plato or Descartes, their belief is in human reason, that they, they fundamentally believe human reason can grasp and understand reality and interpret reality without aid from any other any outside information. Or if you're an empiricist, you, the only outside information you get is information that you uh, detect through your senses, what you hear, what you see, what you uh, feel, touch, uh, observe, uh, the scientific method. But we also believe what an eyewitness tells us, and if that eyewitness is God, then we can believe his report is true because he is true. He is the ultimate authority. So faith is an act of trust in something or someone or belief that something is true. Faith, third, faith is an act of the intellect. We don't believe with our emotions. We believe with our mind. You have to understand it, and we'll see that in a passage um, in a passage that we're looking at as we go through Hebrews 11. Fourth, biblical faith is not faith in itself. We're not saved because we believe. We're saved because we believe in Jesus. So faith is faith in a statement of Scripture ultimately. And that statement of Scripture directs us or says something about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Fifth, faith is something anyone can do. Everyone believes any number of things all the time. In fact, there's a famous statement by the uh, in uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland in the 
uh, in a dialogue interchange between Alice and I think it's the Queen of Hearts that she said, well, I believe any, the Queen said, I believe any number of, uh, of irrational things every day. Uh, so people believe all kinds of things. Just listen to the news sometime. Just read a Gallup poll sometime. You would be amazed at what people believe. But it is what we believe that is important. Saving faith is saving, not because of the kind of faith, but because of what we believe, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So sixth, faith refers to a set, also refers to a set of beliefs or body of doctrine, not just the act of trust, but what is believed. What is that person's faith? Well, they're a Baptist, they're a Methodist, they're an Episcopal. What is their faith? What's their body of doctrine? What's their uh, belief system? So point seven was, and the last two points are the important ones for tonight. Faith can refer to phase one, that is justification belief in Jesus as our substitute, or it can refer to the phase two trust in the promise, the power, the provision, or the procedures of Scripture that we follow in order to grow spiritually. And that's what Hebrews 11 is focused on. So the faith that we see in Hebrews 11.1 is not phase one faith, faith for justification, but it refers to that collection of phase two beliefs that motivate and propel us forward in our spiritual growth. So we come to our verse. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's the Greek word hypostasis, and it has to do with um, the substance of something, the essence of something, or it can refer to a confidence or conviction of something. I will survive. Uh, just keep coughing. Uh, you got some? Yeah. Now that probably will help. I just left. I haven't been coughing the last couple of days, so I probably that pumpkin bread. So I got a crumb down there somewhere. So uh, thank you, uh, Ricola. Good, excellent taste there. Yeah. For those of you who didn't see the vanishing pumpkin bread that Touch made, it vanished. Very quickly, and y'all just missed out. Okay, hopefully that'll calm things down. Thanks. Okay, so faith then is the conviction, the uh, confidence of things hoped for. It, it hope is a confident expectation of future things. Uh, what is hoped for always throws us into the future, and it is the evidence of things not seen. Evidence points to something else. So this is important to remember all the way through this study is that faith is uh, the evidence of something else and it's evidenced by something. Now, when you're in a court of law and the lawyers are presenting evidence that evidence is a testimony of something. It testifies to something. It witnesses to uh, the crime or, or whatever it might be. Now, that's important because one of the key words that we'll see going through uh, Hebrews 11 is the Greek word martyreo, which is where we get our English word martyr, but it is the word uh, for testimony or for a witness. And it can also mean confirmation or approval. Uh, it attests to something. Listen to that word, attest. Attest, testifies, gives a testimony. See, they all kind of have that same root in the T-E-S-T word in English. So this is, ad, uh, this is evidentiary. This is legal. This gives uh, confidence. God doesn't operate in a vacuum. There is always evidence of his work, and he doesn't expect people to believe, just take a leap of faith. The ter whole term leap of faith comes out of Kierkegaardian uh, existentialism, and it doesn't have anything to do with biblical faith. Biblical faith isn't a leap in the dark. 
It is a firm conviction based on certain knowledge that comes from the Scripture. So it is never a leap. So in excuse me, eleven two. Eleven two we read for by it, and the it there, the pronoun is a feminine singular, thus it refers back to faith. By it, by faith, the elders did what? Well, this is translated, obtained a good testimony. That's that key word we're going to watch as we go down uh, through these um, various uh, stories about the different people. So this is the verb martyreo, which has as its primary meaning, taken right out of the uh, Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, Danker lexicon, to confirm or to attest to something. That's what happens in a courtroom. You bring evidence that confirms or attests to what you are trying to uh, demonstrate or prove. It confirms or attests something on the basis of personal knowledge or belief. It bears witness to something. And so what this is saying in verse 2 is that the elders' future hope attested or confirmed. That's what you could see. You could see the evidence in their life that they lived on the basis of a future unseen conviction. And so the, their life gave evidence to that unseen uh, faith or trust in God. And that brings us to verse 3, where we start at the starting point, which is in, as I pointed out last time, with, with creation. Creation is not just some uh, interesting debate between those weird, fundy Christian creationists and the enlightened, scientific, modern man who knows that the earth is billions of years old. It has to do with whether or not you believe that God meant what he said. By faith we understand. Now faith is related here to understanding something. The Greek word here is based on noeo, which is a it's the verb form. The noun form was nous, which means the mind, that part of the soul that thinks, that comprehends, that uh, was able to put things together. So it, the verb has to do with grasping or comprehending something on the basis of careful thought. So Christians are not just superstitious ignoramuses who have some sort of mythical legend that they're leaping to because it's the opiate of the masses. As Mark said, they have given careful thought to what God has said. And so by faith we understand, we comprehend that the worlds were framed by the word of God, that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So let me see, I have a slide here on worlds. This is the Greek word ion, uh, meaning it can mean ages or worlds, or it can refer to the content of the world. So we have to sort of see what the context indicates here. When it's used, uh, just look at the last paragraph on the slide, when it's used in the plural, it refers to, it's, it's a pregnant concept. It refers to both time and space uh, in an interconnected manner. That you can't have time without space, you can't have space without time. So it refers to both as God's creation. So God has created space and time, and he is the one in control of both space and time. So this word sometimes, especially in the singular, has the idea of world, or it can have the idea of age. So we think of world in a more static concept, but it, there it has more of the physical sense, but it can also have the a time sense, and sometimes it's translated ages, and there it has the, the, the temporal idea. So it just all of this is included in that word. It's a significant word that is used here that... By faith we understand that the worlds, that is the universe and the history of the universe, were framed, that is, were created by the word of God. In the Greek there is the word rhema, not logos, but rhema, which is the written, I mean, excuse me, the spoken word of God. So that the word of God produced something that's indicated by the result clause, so that the things which are seen 
were not made out of the things which are visible. And this verse is the one of the few places in the scripture where we have a exceptionally clear statement of ex nihilo creation. The Latin phrase ex nihilo means from nothing. One second there was absolutely nothing, no space, no time, there was just heaven. And there's no space-time continuum at all. And the next instant God said, God spoke, and there is a space-time continuum. And then he began to fill that with the earth. So you had the heavens, which is just the empty space-time continuum, and you have the earth. But there's no mention of stars until the fourth day of restoration. There's no stars before the fourth day. No sun. You just have the earth and a lot of empty space. Now, what's interesting is some of the physicists that work with uh, the Institute for Creation Research on the basis of utilizing principles from um, Einstein's theory of relativity plus going into some other passages in Scripture have set forth the hypothesis that when God originally created the universe, it was very compact. And ever since then, it's been moving out. So it's this is why you get motion and other things. It's beyond that, it gets out of my, gets way beyond my pay grade. So we won't get into those things. But the point here is that Genesis one one does not give you a clear statement of ex nihilo creation. It just says God created the heavens and the earth. But here it's very clear that out of things which are. Uh, the, the things which are seen not made of things that are visible. It's made out of out of nothing. Now, one other verse that's important here is going back to Hebrews one two, talking about the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. So that puts us forward in the inheritance concept, forward to His ultimate role as the King of the earth that through whom also he made the world. So the Father, through the Son, makes the world. Same word there, ion in the plural, indicating the space-time continuum, both in terms of its uh, temporal control as well as physical control. So verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the spoken word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, faith is knowledge. Faith is a knowledge based on a revelation. God testifies in his word that this is what happened. He was the eyewitness. So when we believe him, we're not just leaping into a vacuum. We are believing an eyewitness account. And there is nothing different in the knowledge that you have based on an eyewitness account than the knowledge that you have based on a scientific experiment in a laboratory or uh, that you have on, on principle of rationalism, except you have the ultimate authority. But if you reject that prima facie as irrational, then you're left without anything to stand on, and everything really ends up being guesswork. This is what happens to man because of sin. Romans 1, 18 to 20 uh, describes this whole uh, mentality the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In order to pursue unrighteousness, man has to reject, reshape, redefine truth. Because if truth is what God says it is, then man stands condemned. He is guilty as charged, and he knows it to the very core of his being. Everything in creation announces that to him and announces that there is a God. It's the unbeliever that comes along and says, I don't believe there's a God, has been stuffing the knowledge of God into a dark hole somewhere in his soul for years and years and years. And what happens is that some Christian comes along and makes a statement like we ought to have... Um, uh, we ought to teach uh, um, intelligent design in the schools. And they just erupt in anger. Why? Because all of a sudden what you did by just saying that is you, you reach down with a, with a little hook 
deep into their soul and you open up the trap door and God popped out and they've been working for years to keep God's stuff down in that under that trap door and you let him out and all of a sudden they're guilty and they just can't stand that they there's this flash of light in the soul that just exposes all the darkness and they immediately react in anger and stomp on that trap door and that's why you get the, these these uh extreme reactions from people when you start talking about teaching creationism in the schools or intelligent design in the schools or even in your own families when you try to talk to some of your children some of your parents some of your siblings about the importance of Christ and the importance of the Bible, they don't want to hear it. And as calm and as rational and as nice as you are in all of those conversations, and I know you're just like I am and always just so wonderfully calm and nice, but in many times we are, and what happens is they just go ballistic. And this is why, because you've just reached down there with a little hook and popped open that trap door and God popped out and they just can't stand it. So verse 19 says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. That word manifest means it's revealed in them. Inside of them there is the voice of God. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. That's external. There is an external evidence. There's a little sign that we all see that's hanging on every tree, every flower, every blade of grass, every molecule in the universe that says made by God. It doesn't say made in Japan or made in China. It says made by God. And spiritually, everybody sees it or knows it's there. I'm just speaking hyperbolically. I don't want anybody taking this literally. But it's it's there. And so there's something in... You know, uh, Augustine used the term of a God-shaped vacuum in every soul, but there is something in the soul of every human being because we're made in the image and likeness of God that every time that we see that, there's a connection that's made. And they've got a, in, in negative volition, that connection has got to be stopped. It can't continue. So what happens is, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. They're manifest. What's invisible is clearly seen. Madeline Murray O'Hare, you know, all of the uh, Richard Dawkins, all of the other, or uh, Christopher uh, Hitchens, all of these so-called atheists, deep inside their soul, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt, with as much certainty as you do, that God exists. But they've been suppressing that truth in unrighteousness for years and years and years. And the last thing in the world they want is for you to open that trap door. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood. There's that word again. Being understood, mentally grasped, comprehended. Uh, it's thought, it's intellection, understood by the things that are made. This is the foundation for something like the intelligent design argument. The intelligent design argument doesn't necessarily take you back to God. It just says there had to be an intelligent designer. That doesn't necessarily have to be God. But that's what this is saying, is that by looking at the complexities of the universe, we know the, that the creator had to be omnipotent. So but that is understood, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's enough knowledge about God given evidence of in the creation to hold every single human being accountable if they reject God and reject Jesus Christ, accountable enough so that um, and when the tribulation occurs, and we've studied this in Revelation, when the tribulation occurs and you have the sixth seal take place when there's earthquakes and thunderings and the stars fall to the earth and the kings of men hide in the caves in the mountains, they will shake their fist against God and, and pray that the earth will just fold in over them to uh, save them from the wrath of the Lamb, and the wrath of him who sits on the throne. They know he's there. 
but they are never, ever, ever going to bow the knee, and that is why they will spend uh, eternity in the lake of fire. So that's the importance of creation. It's foundational. Then we come to the first um, major event after the fall, described in Genesis chapter 4. So you might want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. And we read in Hebrews 11:4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. Now let's just sort of clarify a couple of words in here. Uh, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which. Now, what is the to what does the which refer? It could refer to the sacrifice because that's a feminine noun, but it most likely refers back to faith because this is a pattern we see all the way through um, these these episodes. It is through faith or by faith that the testimony is is uh, is given. And so the through which should be through faith. He did he what he re- obtained witness or received condem- commendation. There's that word again, martyreo, that we're gonna we're gonna run into. We'll talk more about it uh, probably next time. But he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now he was already saved, so this isn't talking about justification righteousness. This is talking about post-salvation righteousness that is that confirms his spiritual growth, his spiritual maturity, that is the basis for rewards. So he, he obtained witness, evidence that, what, that he was righteous. God testifying, there's another form of that word again, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, through what? The it there's got to refer back to the faith. Again, it's a has a feminine noun referent, so it would refer back to the faith. Through it, that is through the faith, he being dead still speaks. Through faith, his faith, which stands stands as a monument throughout all of eternity to the grace of God, his faith still speaks. Our faith, our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, the evidence of our spiritual life, it stands as an eternal monument and will stand for eternity as testimony to the grace of God, the love of God in the angelic conflict, and that evidence is never going to be uh, destroyed or removed. So we see a comparison here in the text. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. So you have one word there, the uh, comparative adjective, uh, playona, more acceptable or superior. That's the idea. The sacrifice that Abel offered was superior to the sacrifice that Cain offered. It's not that Abel was superior to Cain, but that the sacrifice that he offered was acceptable. Cain's was not. So it's a comparative term there. It was a superior sacrifice, a more acceptable sacrifice, and that raises the question, in what way was it better? Was it better because of the quality of Abel's faith, that Abel had a saving faith and Cain did not? Or was it because of the quality of the sacrifice? Now, I will tell you, when you go out beyond the doors of this church, you will find that in the last 50 years that the vast majority of writers on Scripture and pastors will say it is because of the quality of Abel's faith. And they will base that on the view that um, the sacrifice that Cain brought was uh, from the fruit of the field. And see, later on in Scripture, you have the first fruit offering, same word that's used there, the Hebrew word is mencha, same words used to describe the first fruit offerings. And so it can't be uh, an issue, they would say, between uh, Cain bringing the fruit of the field versus Abel bringing a blood sacrifice. That just can't be it. So it has to be what, what their thought, their, their motivation. It was what was in, inside of them. But that doesn't really fit 
the evidence of Scripture. So let's go back. Just We'll just touch into, get into this tonight in Genesis 4. Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 4, and we read, Now the man had relations with his wife right after, after the fall. So they uh, have um, uh, sexual intimacy, and uh, Adam knew his wife. That is the uh, circumlocution for describing uh, uh, sexual reproduction. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, the, there's a Hebrew word, kana, which means to get, to acquire, to purchase, uh, or even to create. And this is a, a word that Cain is not uh, from kana, but it sounds like it. It is a, it's a pun. And this is often how names are given when you read in the Old Testament, so-and-so is named such-and-such, and it meant thus-and-so. It's not really that the, the, an actual one-to-one correspondence with the name. The name sounds like this other word, so that when you say the name Cain, what you would think of is Cana, and that means to buy or acquire. And he's, she's saying, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. The, if you look at the... Uh, Text there, the word, um, the help of, or even with the help of, uh, isn't in the original. Literally, it says, I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. And I think that uh, when God promised that her seed would defeat the seed of the serpent, that when she has this first male child, she's thinking, this is the seed. This is the man-child, the Lord. And she understands that the seed that's going to de- of man that's going to defeat the seed of the serpent is a God-man. So she is saying, uh, I have acquired a man, the Lord. And she thinks that this is the incarnate Messiah. It's not long be- probably before she realized that wasn't true and that she was going to be living, living in a fallen environment for quite a while. And some time went by. Verse 2, we read again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. This is not a story about the farmers versus the ranchers. <coughs> Truly, there are people who te- think that's what this is all about. This is the farmers versus the ranchers. That's not, or, or not even the farmers versus the, the shepherds. This is a, a, about, uh, that's not really the focal point. Uh, the focal point is on the sacrifice. So uh, she has a son, Abel. This come Abel. The name Abel comes from the noun or is related to the noun Hebel, which means breath, vanity, or vapor. So she's moved from thinking that, oh, I've got a man-child that's the Lord, to life is vanity, just like Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Life is but a breath. She's come to grips with the fact that she's living in a fallen world that is filled with problems, and so uh, there is a definite shift in her optimism from Cain uh, to Abel. In verse 3, we're told, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Well, some time goes by. Uh, clearly enough time for, for them to at least reach adolescence. Fifteen or twenty years goes by uh, before the episode. It could have been uh, a, a good deal longer. It could be twenty, thirty years, uh, maybe even longer, because as, we'll, as we see in Chapter 5, uh, they live to the ripe old age of 900 and something. So we don't know how much time went by. Minimum, I think, would be 15 or 20 years, and it could have been, uh, could have been much longer. But after, Seth isn't born until after this, and Seth is born when Adam's 120 years old. So we know that it wasn't longer than that. Uh, they had some time in the garden, even if it wasn't a great deal of time. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat portions, 
And the Lord had regard. That means he, the, the, the Hebrew word means he looked with favor on something. This is related to the word that's used in, um, uh, Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It has the idea of looking with favor on something. So the Lord looks with favor or has regard for Abel and for his offering. Now, we're really not told why in the Genesis account. What we do know as we just look at the details is there's an animal sacrifice at the end of chapter 3 because God clothes Adam and Eve with uh, animal skins. That implies the shedding of blood and it implies death. There ha- and, and because they're bringing these offerings to God, there had to have been some sort of divine instruction about sacrifices and offerings and what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. God just doesn't sit back and say, well, just bring something, whatever you want. It's okay, just just bring an offering. Uh, you define what it is, that'll be fine. He never leaves it up to the creature to determine what is brought as the offering. He may give options within a category, but he defines it first. Now, when we get to Hebrews 11.4, our passage, we're told that there was something qualitatively different about Abel's sacrifice than Cain's sacrifice. In Hebrews 12.24, in the next chapter, there's a reference to this, that Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So again, Abel's sacrifice is spoken of in high regard. It is but that Christ's uh, sacrifice, his death, is superior. First uh, John 3.12 also mentions this. That Cain, who was the wicked one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So it is not his attitude, it is not his motivation, it is his works. It is what he brought to the table that's defined as evil in 1 John 3.12, and Abel's is defined as righteous. So this is why the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, is because Abel is bringing a blood sacrifice, because that is what he had been told to do. He is obedient. A human viewpoint comes along and says, I'm going to define what what is acceptable to God. And so I'm going to bring my works, as opposed to what uh, relying upon God and what God says. And so there's always that that conflict between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, and all religion always seeks to define that man can produce something that will uh, garner God's uh, approbation. Verse 5, for Cain, for his offering, he had no regard, so Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, that's all we need to do to cover that. And we're already out of time, so we're just going to have to come back to 11.4. But basically what 11.4 is going to say, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and through which, through his faith, he obtained witness. Remember, faith is the evidence of something. So through the faith, he provides evidence and receives a testimony or a commendation that he was righteous. God expresses that approval. And we'll see when we get to uh, Noah that it's expressed, I mean with Enoch, that it's expressed as pleasing God. So God accepts the sacrifice. That's what it's meant by that phrase, God testifying of his gifts. God approves the sacrifice. And so that gives evidence of, of Abel's faith and it is the basis for reward, as we'll see when we develop into the next couple of examples. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, think about faith, think about our faith, our post-salvation faith, our faith rest drill, the faith that produces spiritual growth because we understand your word and we apply your word, and that it is through the application of your word in obedience that we provide evidence in the angelic conflict and that you uh, express, uh, you are pleased, you express approval, you commend those works done in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and that those works, that divine good, becomes then the basis for our uh, rewards, which are in turn to glorify you. Father, we pray that this will motivate us to challenge us to go forward in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.